Hello and welcome to the next episode of the Forgotten Football Podcast. I'm your host for this evening, as usual, Rory Bryce, and I'm joined this week by Chris Kelly. How's it going, mate? Yeah, well, good. Cheers, mate. Thank you. No problem, mate. It's good to have you back on. How have things been? Uh, ups and downs of life again, as usual. Never quite straightforward, but uh, yeah, still doing okay. Okay. That's the main thing. That's the main thing. Is um as good as things can be with how Grimsby are at the moment, I'm sure. Um, <laughs> but things keep marching on as usual. And uh, we're joined by another very special guest this evening, uh, a sports journalist and anchor from Ukraine. I'm joined by Dimitro July. How's it going, Dimitro? Pleasure to have you on. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Very uh, special topic today. Yeah, it absolutely is a very special topic. This, of course, is our first episode of the next run of podcast shows that we're going to be doing, uh, where we've basically just taken the shackles off. We're going to be discussing clubs from all over the world now, players, grounds, topics from all over the world. And we wanted to start off on, as Dimitra said, a very special one, a very emotional one, and a, a, a great story as well. Uh, we are, of course, going to be discussing FC Budavelnik Pripyat, FC Stroitel Pripyat, club had a number of names um we're going to explain all about the different names and and all about what the identities behind those names mean um and we're going to talk a little bit about other lost clubs from ukraine as well and um yeah just football in ukraine in general but you'll have saw by now that alongside this podcast a blog article has went out on um on the Pripyat club that we're going to be discussing which was written by Chris and Vincent uh, and that Dimitro and uh, a few other guest people contributed to as well with photographs and and quotes and, and knowledge so um Chris and, and Dimitro why don't you tell us a little bit about how how writing that was what the research process was like uh, I'll start if you want um yeah initially I think through the you know, forgotten football, we put a, a request out, didn't we, for followers of any clubs they'd like to sort of see us look into. I believe Charlotte Patterson uh, wanted us to have a look at Schweiter Pripyat or Budavelnik Pripyat. Um, so that that's that's where we started, sort of late last year. Uh, with it being such a well, it is a special topic, we wanted to sort of get the not just the, the facts of it, we wanted to sort of get the emotional side of it. Um, so I, we reached out to um, Arta Valerko, Pichev, I think to pronounce it, if I'm getting that right, I hope, um, who were very, very sort of knowledgeable on the subject. Um, we got some great quotes from them. Some You could sort of really, through the article, you could sort of feel the emotion of it through through them, if you know what I mean. That, um, hope... Uh, Hope it comes across that way. Hope it covers it in a way that's it does it justice, if you get what I mean. Um, the situation, the club, uh, uh, what happened to the what was a, a region that the effects are still ongoing today. So um, hopefully we've done it justice in the article, and it's certainly a, a very interesting topic. Absolutely. And Dimitro, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and your relationship with the club? You know, obviously, as you said, it's quite emotional. So um, why don't you tell us a little bit about that? No, I've been just uh, working as a journalist, a football commentator for uh, a while now. And uh, basically, oh, I just love stories. I Actually, I love your blog as well, because I, I think I found it a, a few years ago when there was a guy who wrote a piece on the club that disappeared in Luxembourg and that's, he put it on Twitter and that's how I started following you on Twitter as well. The, the forgotten football clubs and stuff. And these are the kind of stories that fascinate me. And of course, I understand, look, if it wasn't for the nuclear disaster, nobody would be interested in Budavelnik Pripyat right now, anyway in the world. Mm -hmm. So that's, what kind of makes it special for foreigners, but also, of course, for, for, for Ukrainians, because for so many people, it was a part of their lives. And yeah. I was just taken from them uh, in a few minutes, basically. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think you're right as well. There's there's this kind of dark tourist sort of element associated with Pripyat and, and the area affected by the Chernobyl disaster. And the, the football club must formulate a part of that, where they started. But look, they were filing reports from the very start that something is wrong, that people are doing this wrong. They're not doing this. They're not doing that. 
it was a disaster waiting to happen from day one. So that's for me, it just makes it even worse, you know, because these people were basically living on a volcano. It was already active. And they were the ones who were making it active. You know, it was like amazing. In 1978, they were supposed to have a security staff of 84 on the building side of the station. Mm -hmm. They had only 34 people there. So a lot of things were just simply stolen from there. And of course, I mean, it's a very typical situation for any so-called socialist country in those days. Things were stolen from everywhere by everyone. But we're talking about nuclear energy here. And it was like from the day one, it was doomed. Just to add on that, that's um, that's something that sort of Arthur and Serhai went into, is the fact that the authorities from the beginning, from everything, were covering an awful lot up. That was something they were keen to get across as well. It's it's maybe something more of its time than, should we say, nowadays, if you know what I mean, in terms of how it how the, uh, should we say, the Soviet Union worked. But then I presume Dimitri knows better than me. In, in that regard. Um, and health and safety, of course, uh, it's certainly come on leaps and bounds since then anyway, but it, it, for the, for it to be covered up to the degree that it was, like Dimitro said, it was quite shocking, really. Well, as, as Dimitro said, by the sounds of things, and, and as we all know anyway, it was a completely avoidable, catastrophic loss of human life in, in, in an entire region of Ukraine, which is now just uninhabitable. So, yeah. Entirely avoidable, um, and 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 you're absolutely right that, that it was a huge cover up, and and we've seen photos and and the devastation that was caused in the region in the aftermath, and yeah, it's it's just it, it is shocking and it's sad to say, but unfortunately, it's something that we've not to put on too much of a tin hat, but we I think we've all become accustomed to governments sweeping things under the rugs, you know, very much when it suits them, um, but more often than not. No, but here we're talking here about your own secret service telling you every year, look, this is wrong. You can't be doing this. They were naming people. They were telling what is wrong. And nothing happened. Nobody reacted to it. And of course, and it, like the Soviet Union, like from the early 70s, it was, it was in, in total complete decay. It was just falling apart. Thanks to Mr. Reagan, who came and just kind of pushed it a bit more. Yeah. But it was like that almost everywhere, in everything. So in a way, it doesn't surprise me. What does surprise me is why on earth they didn't even listen to KGB when they were telling you all this. Dimitri, do you think that's because the, the Soviets sort did not see Pripyat as the sort of flagship city for what they were looking to do with the atom grads? So was it maybe perhaps covered up in well, terms look, of not wanting? It was, it was the very first nuclear station at the moment that was being built in Ukraine. And uh, among those reports, there were... Uh, talking about people just not being qualified enough for that kind of work not only in the building but also in the maintenance of the station and apparently there were issues before the big one in 1986 but again they were covered up they didn't do anything and they didn't change anything that's the worst thing about it for me yeah not an ideal situation at all no no absolutely not in the slightest and, and i think Certainly from the Western point of view, in terms of exposure to the Chernobyl disaster and Pripyat is the devastation uh, that happened during and beforehand. You know, all we know it for is a disaster. But of course, there was life before this, that there was life in, in the town, there was life in the city, there was life all around it in aspects as we know it as well. And, and I suppose that's one thing that's probably quite intriguing in a way to a lot of people about the football club is that they see this entity attached to a disaster and they think, well, it kind of shakes them a little bit because it reminds them that there was a, a not just a civilization but a thriving city before this disaster happened and during it happened and I think that's that's the thing that shocks people quite a lot is that these normal things these everyday things that we have now they would have also had. Well, because they speaking to uh, Artem and Serhai for, for the blog article, they were they were keen to sort of point out that Pripyat was seen as a sort of like a city of the future. It, it was on the same level in terms of goods and, and availability of consumer uh, products. And it was on the, on the scale of the bigger cities of the Kievs and the, um, and Dnipro and, and, and whatnot. So yeah, it was very, it was a thriving city. It seems to be growing and, and yeah, it'd be interesting to see where or how big it could have grown today, not the city and the football club. Uh, but that's something obviously we'll, we'll, we'll never know. Yeah. And uh, if we, 
speak about the club, I would like to put some context into it because we're talking approximately 1980s, from 80 to 86. And in that period of time, there were regularly five teams in the, in the Soviet top flight from Ukraine. There were four in 1980, one went down, but then two were promoted. So from 81 to 86, and it was generally an 18 club uh, top flight, it was 16 in 86, you'd have five clubs from Ukraine, and two of them during those uh, uh, years won the title. Mm. In the second division, it was like 24 and 22, but then again back to 24. You'd have from eight to three clubs from Ukraine playing during those years. And then the third division, it was regionalized. So Ukraine had its own zone of 23, 24, and then 26 and 28 teams. And there was a season in 83 when 26 teams played a proper tournament of 50 games. Can you imagine a league of 50 games? Then they decided, okay, that's too much. So they had two groups of 13 and two groups of 14. So that third division was like the aim for Budivelnik when they started, because they were playing in the amateur, so-called amateur competition, Mm. which meant that we had like different smaller cities in Kyiv region, different factories, uh, uh, different organizations that had their own football clubs. And it was a fierce competition. Because everybody knows in every country, first of all, you want to beat your neighbor. You want yeah. to beat someone in the same industry and say, yeah, we're better than you. So all those people, you know, they had kind of, uh, it's not like, of course, club presidency, because it's not, it's not, it's the wrong word for the Soviet Union in the 1980s. All those people, they're not even working for the station. They were mostly in the building industry. And they were actually good footballers. So I've just told you, you know, 28 clubs in the third division, just in Ukraine, a few clubs higher up the uh, league pyramid. So imagine how many players were already involved in those. And they still had enough to play those so-called amateur competitions. And they had six zones of 13 teams in those. So then the winners of those zones were playing for for, for, for the title in the in a, in a smaller round-robin tournament. So we're talking about a lot of actually good players who had a chance not to become a professional footballer. Maybe mm. they were not good enough. They didn't want to maybe even, you know, but they wanted to play football because yeah. it was a big thing. I was growing up in the 80s. All we did was play, play football, play football all yeah. the time. And it was a very good thing for them because, again, there were incentives in it. You're not only doing your work, you're playing football, you're being paid some extra, especially if you beat your rivals and if you're good <laughs> It was it was amazing, and and all these people were actually taking again. I think this guy was taking care more of his club than he was taking care of uh, building the bloody station. <laughs> I can imagine, and there's actually a good book that I read towards the end of last year called "Emancipation for Goalposts" by Chris Etchingham, and it talks about the the role of football in the fall of the former Republic of Yugoslavia. And he mentions the the Soviet leagues and and how dominant the teams from Belgrade were and 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 that kind of thing, and he also mentioned as well how when teams from the different Soviet states would come up against each other, there would always be this really really good rivalry. But it, it, not not just a rivalry, but it, it was like in some cases it, it could turn quite sour. But it was also like not so much a friendly rivalry, but you know you you, you know you're there. But it was like a good fixture. You know, it was just a good contest, and it was always very very competitive. No, it's like uh, when Scotland play England or Ireland play England. <laughs> well, especially in rugby, it's they're so much better now because Ireland is so much better in rugby than England. You know? But it's the same thing. It's uh, occupied against the occupiers. Yeah, it's yeah. the it's the colonies, you know, trying to beat them at least on the field of play. And we were technically we were occupied at that time. Absolutely. Yep. And it, it was it was big. Because uh, for my team, Dynamo Kiev, for example, Spartak Moscow was the biggest rival, and it was brutal, totally brutal. And and of course, we had like teams from Lithuania, Georgia, France. It was it was it was it was a pleasure to play them, like Dynamo Tbilisi, Zagreb, Vilnius. It was it was totally different level of uh, competition. It was it was like a healthy competition. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. No, it sounds absolutely incredible and. I just I love how this story's been framed because obviously with with the the topic of discussion surrounding um Budivelnik, 
it's you know it's always going to be it's a tragedy and it's a disaster and and it's a cover up and there's always negatives but the way that you talk about it the context of football in Ukraine at that time is great you can see the joy in your face you can see how happy and passionate you are about it and I just think it's absolutely fantastic and again it's it's breathing life back into this club that a lot of people would just associate with with being attached to this tragedy normally so it's just it's it's just amazing and and I love how it's being discussed as I said from what we are normally exposed to in terms of the Chernobyl disaster it's it's and of course it is a tragedy but it's all very negative so to see you know kind of before how things would have been it's just it's brilliant and and it, and it really shows as well how how good football was in Ukraine at that time no i also the thing about this club is that in the beginning they had a manager who was a former player of Dynamo Kiev and he was connected to the institute of physical education and that meant that some of the students like 17 19 year olds were playing a bit for this club just a few games and i was told that actually some future ukraine internationals had run out for them like it's like david Beckham playing for preston <laughs> on loan how many games five he played i think that but when they changed the manager i think in 81 the whole point was about it being the local side for local plays workers and plays so it's incredible that these people more or less local of course because they moved uh, to Pripyat from different uh, towns but it was in the Kiev region most of them came from there so they they could plays for that level and they were local which was another important thing because I can also tell you but in those days and again it's probably everywhere not only in Soviet Union in those days you had a lot of those who wanted to win by cheating you know by bringing yeah. players from different regions and those who had no connection uh, to, to to the side, but they were paying a match till they were coming over and it was like that. These guys did try to make it local. And at first, it, it the results were mixed, but they improved over the like, a short period of time, I'd say. Mm. So did they actually play in the amateur leagues or did they play in the, or the, the amateur leagues, I should say, in air quotes, or did they play further up? Uh, no, they played in the amateur leagues only, and it was effectively a fourth division. It's, it's it's not the same probably as fourth division, of course, in England, where it's League Two and it's a professional division. Of but I'd say it was like level of uh, I don't know National League North or South, probably something like that. And the aim was to join the third division, like the the professional division, which had, like I said, an eighty six twenty eight teams. And it seems like it could be expanded as well because when you adopt the group uh, stage format of 14 teams in a group, it's easier to add teams to those groups. And uh, yeah, they were told that, yeah, that would be the aim. Just keep growing. And the funny thing is also in 85 or 86, they were thinking of starting a nice hockey team in Pripyat. Ah. So it was it was already uh, all set. It's, it's interesting because the guy who came to coach the ice hockey team that never happened eventually ended up working as administrator or whatever in a football club. Uh, uh, and another important thing that uh, the the nuclear disaster happened on April 26th of 86. On the 9th of May, if I remember correctly, they were about to open their new stadium for 5,000 people. And, uh, well... There was there was a game there when it was still not ready. It, it wasn't an official opening. Or they, mm. they did play a game there, but the big one was there for, for the 9th of May. And, well, of course, it never happened. Yeah. We've seen the images of the stadium or the former stadium and what it would look like now. Um, but, you know, presumably... Well, one thing that I assumed and one thing I was going to ask was that this team was, of course, formed because uh, Pripyat was formed and Pripyat was built so this team was to be for the new city or the new town if you like um, and they would have their stadium and it was built but it just goes to show how successful and how good this team was that they decided to build the new stadium so soon into their history and so soon in, into the development of the club it's, it's, it's really really impressive It was formed sort of mid-70s as, as a local club and then joined the, the KFK Championships as Dimitri said before in 1980 one season, I believe, 1980, 81, um, where they struggled initially. That that this that's the more sort of nationwide amateur teams uh, playing each other, uh, and the, the prize is promotion up to the, the the promotion up to the professional game. 
which Demetrius said. They struggled initially with that. Uh, and as Demetrius said, eventually, 1985, just before the new stadium was was built, I think they finished second there, the highest ever finished, just missing out on going up to the sort of the final stages there of, of heading towards professional games. So they, they, they were getting there. There was gradual improvement over the years. In terms of regionally, they did very well in the Kievo Blast Championship. They won the 1981, the 82 and 83 won all consecutive, which I think is still seen in terms of the regional game as one of the best starts uh, ever in Ukrainian football at that level of the game. Mixed mixed results, but certainly tangible and, and obvious progress uh, and, and mixed with the ambition that, that Dimitro was talking about, people uh, behind the scenes. And it would be really interesting to see how far well, where Pripyat could have got to, really. But mm. obviously, we'll never get to know that. Well, that's the thing. And one thing that I was going to ask, assume because of the way that the, the league system was structured, you know, you had the, the sort of Soviet-wide top league, if you like, and, the, and then that was the same in the second tier. And then the, the third tier was regional, but regional was the state that you were in. Would I be right in saying that it's not how, like, regional German football is, where, you know, there's the, there's the Oberliga for the south of Germany, west of Germany, east of Germany, etc. Would it have just been all teams in Ukraine in one division sort of playing against each other because if that was the case it's no wonder they struggled with it because Ukraine's a big country I mean the, the travelling for some of that games would have been absolutely immense No yeah in the, in the third division yeah they had a group uh, a zone they were called zones there was zone there was only for Ukrainian clubs uh, so it didn't matter where in Ukraine away if you were uh, up there or if you were relegated from the second division you'd be playing in that tournament like I said there was a this Glorious tournament in 1983 with 26 teams playing each other. 50 games. Now people complain about professional players <laughs> complain about you know playing too many games. We are talking here about third division. Like they were kind of professional, of course, uh, even if not officially. But 50 games only in the league. And Chris mentioned those regional tournaments. They always there the cups and the leagues and whatever again because again you want to beat your rivals regional rivals you want Absolutely. to win any kind of a, a trophy and actually there's another interesting thing about the third division that we're trying to get to because in the 80s i think it was 82 for the first time when they introduced that uh, for the third division well, at least in the uh, ukrainian zone in your uh, squad you could have no more than six players older than 25 okay wow and we're talking about loads of teams here look we're, we're talking about nine zones of 17 17 17 15 16 24 in ukraine 19 19 and 17 teams no more than six players older than 25 and one of them had to be a goalkeeper <laughs> but look then you must have had in your squad two players aged from 16 to 18 and one of them had to be in a starting lineup in every home fixture basically if you did not have that player you started with 10 and you played with 10 and i was just like i didn't remember that honestly when i was preparing i started to do my maths and i was like how would you find so many young players but well that was one of the things they wanted to promote as well. Of course, it wasn't the same for the amateurs, even in Ukraine, but uh, they did have those rules in the early 80s and in the third division of Soviet football. And did Pripyat ever play any teams from other nations, other na either within the Soviet Union or out with friendlies, um, if, if there were sort of international tournaments, if you like, anything along those lines, or were they just maybe too far down uh, the divisions for, for things like that to be feasible? Not that I know of. Maybe Chris found something, but no, I, I, I go along with Dimitri. I don't think they've got that level of growth yet uh, at the time of, of what happened. Um, maybe it's something that have, you know, like we've said before, with the the ambition and the the gradual growth. But maybe it's something that have reached a level that have reached in time. But uh, no, not something that I came across in research. Um, no. Well, mm. definitely not probably for the first team because it's, again, interesting. Uh, in 86, uh, they were about to have a major wrestling competition in Pripyat. And that was for, for the whole, like for, for the teams or athletes from the whole Soviet Union. So 
I'm thinking if they had the academy, for example, if they had young kids playing football there, they might have participated in some tournaments because even when I was a kid you know, and we had some teams coming over to Kiev from different parts of Soviet Union playing in those tournaments, it wasn't very often, but it did happen. So maybe on that level, they did, but on, on the, for the first team, it, it was probably very, very difficult at that time to, to, to play anyone from beyond the, this Kiev region. Of course. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. I, I can imagine. It's just it was a thought that popped into my head. It would be. Oh, well, I, I can I can give an example. Uh, St. Kevin's Boys Club in Dublin, when they organised those tournaments, and Barcelona came, and Celtic came, and Deportivo, and Lyon, and I would probably even never thought about it that it could be organised by such a small club. So maybe they had something similar. I don't know, Paul. Uh, I'm not. I'm not sure. Yeah. No, it's, it's, uh, I love things like that and I love hearing things like that. You know, we, we've covered a lot of clubs in this podcast where, you know, they've kind of lived fast and died young and they've played some incredible teams. And they're one of those clubs where you just, you remember the name, you know, you remember the name and, and you remember them for being in maybe the first or second round of a, a European competition. And I think, actually, just to go off on a little bit of a tangent, there's quite a good relationship in Ukraine with a lot of Hibs fans. Um, from Scotland because when Hibs played uh, Dnipro I think in 2004 yeah I was at that game when Dnipro won 5-1 at home I was at that game yeah uh-huh. um, and of course when the Hibs fans came back they set up um, Dnipro kids and they've been going out and, and helping yeah. Dnipro and, and helping out there so th- there's always been a great relationship and uh-huh. um, I'm trying to think there's there's two Ukrainian players in Scotland that kind of come to come into my head, but we can we can touch on them later. I'm still still obviously quite keen to hear more about about this club and and the people that played for them and and the heights they they had. But no doubt you have some memories from that game yourself, Dimitro. It was glorious. Uh, they, they, they traveled back to Kiev uh, on the train early in the morning, and all the hangover heaps fans with their Scottish actions trying to explain what they wanted to drink, eat in the morning, <laughs> and I got the lady barely spoke English. Because well, she's not used to it, and it's a train between Kiev and Dnipro, you know, and all those Scottish guys were asking for their beers <laughs> early in the morning. It was glorious. That was it was amazing. Because uh, I've always loved Scotland, mate. Just uh, it's my thing. But uh, whenever uh, any Ukrainian club came up against a Scottish club, it was it was always something like that. No, mm-hmm. <laughs> I remember. Fans. I remember being at the. I think it was this the Celtic and Donetsk game. Is that 2011, maybe? Uh, Shakhtar played them a few times in the Champions yeah, League, actually. There were well, a few well, games, yeah. Actually, we played Shakhtar a couple of years ago when Deserbi was still manager. Anyway, we'll come back onto that later because there's, there's yeah. some interesting stuff in there as well. But were there any standout players for Pripyat? Any guys that went on to play for other clubs or you know, climb the leagues? No, basically, I think after that happened, a lot of them were actually working as liquidators uh, at the station, no matter what they did before. They, they all participated. And I think uh, they dedicated their time to this. And after that, I'm not sure they even played football, even on that level that they were playing uh, before the disaster disaster struck. So I like I said, you know, I've heard about those future internationals uh, having run out, but it was like late seventies, probably early eighties. Uh, but not the guys who actually formed the team that was second in the eighty-five. No, because I was reading the interviews and they 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 didn't really mention the football careers as such. They probably they they coached maybe later, but uh, as uh, players they probably just stop for them mm. i suppose like, it would have been a lot different as well and and when you're playing sort of in the again in air quotes amateur divisions if it's something that takes you away from the game and not to speak of a disaster just anything at all it can be quite difficult to get back into and and of course even though you play football and, and you play football in the purest sense because you're playing for the sake of playing because you enjoy it then work is always going to come first. And, and if then you have to relocate or you've lost family members, then it's not going to be at the forefront of your mind, you know? So, but I mean, one of the things that I suppose has kind of kept them in memory has been some of the football tops that have been 
I suppose manufactured some of the the replica football kits that have been made. And Chris, that was one that that Charlotte kind of put you onto quite early on, wasn't it? it? Was the the retro kits that were made? It was a company in Philadelphia, am I right in saying? Uh, yeah, Philadelphia, USA. Icarus Football, I believe, uh, produced uh, at least one retro. I mean, it's it's quite snazzy to say the least. Uh, retro concepts, Stroytel, Pripyat shirt, and it. Uh, looking on social media and doing the research uh, it's certainly a very popular shirt it certainly stands out it it, it kind of it, if you remember the arsenal bruise banana shirt it's got slight look of that about it but it's got a few few more different colors in there as well yeah it's uh, i think that's what brought brought the club a little bit more sort of popularity of late is uh, icarus football bringing that out and uh, and then people have started sort of again looking back at the club and and realising how sort of special and, and certainly unique the story was. Mm. Um, so that's that's sort of, I think, certainly contributed as to why Charlotte uh, wanted us to investigate further into the club. And uh, I, know, uh, I know the shirt's very popular amongst collectors. Mm, absolutely. I think what, what was interesting for me, and, and this will kind of lead us on to what I wanted to ask you both next. Now, obviously, on that retro kit, um, the, the sponsor, if you like, on it is the 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 letters for which I assume were CCCP, which was obviously the the abbreviation of the Soviet Union in Russian. Now, I know that the Pripyat have had a couple of names was Stroytel and there was Budvelnik, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. No, it's and, the same name but different languages. Yeah, one right, is in okay. Russian, other is in Ukrainian. Of yeah, of course. So, but within that as well, there's obviously there's obviously a lot of history and a lot of um, issues with identity within those as well because um, you know some people would probably prefer to call them by one name whereas others would call them by the other based on on nationality and, and there's obviously a lot of, of kind of maybe not so much opposing but you know maybe historic troubles if you like that were kind of brought up through this well if you are in League of Ireland would you call Derry City London Derry City no you wouldn't no, you wouldn't. No, you wouldn't. Look, we had a club, a basketball club in Kiev. It was the same name, which used to be Stratil, and then they switched to Budivelnik, to Ukrainian pronunciation. In the 1980s, under this particular name, they won their only title against the mighty Zalgiris Kaunas, the, one of the best sides ever in history of basketball in Europe. And it was accepted even in Moscow, in the news, when they're reading the news and the sports news, they were using the Ukrainian version. It was it was really interesting because uh, the club decided it. I don't remember when exactly, but eighty nine they won the title. So and and they played like under under that name I think for for a while before that, and it was accepted. Okay, now it's an Ukrainian. It's a Ukrainian club, so of course there are people who would be saying all that thing, but. In the documents, you, you could, of course, depending on the language, you, you, you have one or the other version. Mm. But there was regional competitions and Ukrainian was still kind of a language that was used in, in, in official papers in there. So actually, back then, it was like two names, two versions of the same name. Yeah. Uh, and uh, of course, uh, people in their daily lives, they, they use both languages, mixing them sometimes and all that stuff. But generally, uh, I think it was, both both names were used. Mm. Okay, yeah. So, so yeah, both the... versions even better. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Interchangeably, then. Yeah, I think in doing the research with Arthur and Serhai and Dimitro and, uh, and and various other people, I think it's it's a little bit sort of depending on where you're based. I think over where we are, uh, and obviously in America, where where the shirt was produced. You get the Stroytel because that's what it, what they were formed as initially. That's kind of what the research pages say. But for people based, should we say, nearer and over towards Ukraine and towards nearer towards where the club was based, it all, it, it's very much Budovelnik rather than Stroytel. So it, it's kind of location based. I think both, uh, both as, as Dimitri said, both mean the same thing. I think Stroytel means builder in, in Russian in, in Soviet times and. Uh, and Budovelnik is 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 builder in Ukrainian, so it, yeah, it's very much location based uh, and obviously carries historic connotations or whatnot. So, mm. 
absolutely i mean that's why i was i was curious more for the connotations obviously what working within and and having studied and, and written about heritage the the issues around identity and these kind of intangible things are, are really interesting for me so um it, it was something that i was quite curious about as well but um of course and as you wrote in the article the the club that was formed for a city with purpose slipped away of course due to the disaster which which was upsetting and you've mentioned a few times chris that you know who knows where this club could have gone if if that hadn't had happened but it's, it, it's a huge tragedy that caused untold suffering and and you know understandably that the club ceased to exist more or less from that day but um they were remembered quite fondly though because in 2016 30 years on from the disaster they played a memorial game and remembrance of the club am i right in saying that I got the dates right for that yeah yeah uh 2016 yeah uh, against let me get the pronouncement right. I think Borodjanka, the team that were yeah. due to play. Machina Budivnik Borodjanka. Yeah, the thing is that they were due to play the semi-final of the cup, yeah. of the regional cup against this team from Borodjanka. And they were preparing for it. And Borodjanka team were preparing for it. And they were training on the pitch. And then a helicopter just came and, and just landed basically on the pitch. So the guy came out and said, what are you doing here? Said, We've got a game of football. Said, Forget about football. You're not playing. You're not playing anymore. Wow. <laughs> so it was just like that. Imagine that you, you, you were, okay, you're not a professional player, but still you're a footballer. You, 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 you have a semi-final of the cup, which is important and all that. And I'm just, just like a helicopter comes and then the guy comes out and says, what are you doing here? And that's why they decided exactly those players who were still alive in 2016 to play in Borodanka that game as in, in memory of everything that happened. So they could fulfill the tie. I thought yeah. it was yeah. wonderful. And, and, yeah, yeah and, it but... went, and, and it went to penalties in 2016. So <laughs> it's a proper cup tie. Who won? I think Borodanka won. Uh, yeah, I, I believe so, yeah. 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 Go on. No, that's, that, that's excellent. I love, the, the, there's a lot of things here that, that are coming to me. You, you know, it's the fact that they played a friendly to remember this club, so there's the remembrance of it. But they also they fulfilled the tie, which I, th I think is just wonderful, you know, and and, and it's really excellent. Was the the Stroytel team was that made up of former players? Was it a select eleven just from from local teams or? No, the, those are the, the guys who played in the team in eighty five, eighty six, who were preparing to play the semi final. All those who were still alive, they they, they played in that game. Yeah, amazing, amazing. That's absolutely incredible, and I mean. You know, obviously, for the, the the tragedy that surrounds them, there's all these amazing stories, and 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 you guys have put it absolutely perfectly, um, just capturing all the emotion and and all the things around this absolutely fantastic club. I mean, is there anything else you want to say about them before we quickly move on? Any other stories that you can think of? Um, just anything that you'd like to add just before we finish up on them? No, just for me, it's again the this this huge contradiction between what happened when they were building the, the whole thing, neglecting everything that should have been done, and this joy of life and football and sports and what was happening in the city. Like I said, they were doomed from day one, but they didn't know it. Mm. And that just makes it now even um, like more painful, yeah. I'd say. Yeah, I think contradiction's the right word. They were pretty out to see this sort of, I believe we're seen as a stylish sort of architectural, architecturally stylish city, uh, doing well. The city was doing well. The football club were, were doing well. But behind the scenes, there was always this incident, accident, whichever word's best, uh, sort of waiting to happen to put an end to it all, to what was being built. Uh, and in the background, there was this thing there that was at some point going to come along and, and take it all away. It, it all seemed very contradictory and, and very avoidable. Mm-hmm. Avoidable being the key word, I think, especially, and 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 that kind of takes us back to the the start of what we were discussing. Again, bustling city, the city's doing very well for itself. Um, it's a progressive city, and there's always this thing going on in the background threatening to take it away, and it does, which is unfortunate. But as you as you've both said, entirely avoidable. Yeah, very much so. Although the city was, it was really thriving. It was growing, thriving, uh, and. Like Demetrius says, for the people in the know to know this was on its way, but it seems strange for to continue to see the city continue building in the background, knowing it's all going to be taken away. It seems a very bizarre way of looking at things. There must have been, I don't understand the reason or the logic behind it. They must have their own people in the know must have their own reasons for that, but 
it's all very much avoidable and uh, well, very sad. Yeah, absolutely. You're absolutely spot on. Um, and I think the thing during all of this is, is of course, we are a, a football history podcast. We we, we talk about football and, and it's the forefront of what we talk about. And we wanted to tell the story of this football club. But, um, of course, when the disaster was happening and, and all the things going on there, football would have very much been, been not even secondary. You know, it would be so far down the pecking order for a lot of people. But, um, you know, the, the, the story of the club is, is still fascinating and, and there's different ways that people perceive Pripyat now. <laughs> Again, more or less as a dark tourism sort of area, as, as, as I said at the beginning, you know, in 2016, the, the game that they played to remember them was fantastic. And you can only hope that, that in the future, perhaps not in our lifetimes, football will be able to be played there again. Yeah. Um, I know the, uh, the exclusion zone is still very sort of strictly controlled by the Ukraine, understandably by the Ukrainian government. As you say, there are that the, the term I found when I was researching was adventure tourists. Um, is yeah. behind the scenes industry there that seems to be doing quite well. I yeah. know, um, I know through again through the research that certain tour operators, in conjunction with the Ukrainian government, are allowed to arrange tours uh, around the city. Uh, but it's all very, very strict. And as you say, it could well. It, it could well be well out of our lifetimes before that particular region, I presume, in general, returns to any form of what you consider any form of normality with with the continuing radiation that's obviously going around the place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, as, as well as, as Pripyat, are there any other lost Ukrainian clubs that, that come to mind, Dimitro, Chris, either of you? I mean, we, I think... We've discussed a couple before, but there's a few from maybe the early two thousands that have went defunct and then they've they've been reformed again. Are there any really from from the eighties and nineties that you guys can think of or came across in your research? Well, uh, what happened in ninety two when Ukraine became independent? Like I said, we had like generally five clubs, maybe more clubs in the top flight, and a few in the second division. But then those clubs were third division clubs, and they became top division clubs yeah. in the Ukrainian league. And uh, some of them actually did well, let's say, you know, they became uh, proper top division clubs over the years. But there was one, uh, it was <laughs> a very interesting story because behind that club, it was called Temp from Shepetovka. They were two Georgian guys, I think. Okay. And they founded the club in 1990. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because uh, it was the time, you know, when in Soviet Union they kind of allowed private initiative, let's say, in business. So sure. people were doing the different companies. And, the, and there was a Georgian guy there who mm, founded the company. And then uh, they were financing the, the club. And uh, we mentioned the regional a cup that uh, Budivelnik was supposed to play against Borodyanka, but there was also a cup for amateurs in, in Ukraine. In, 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 well, it's still part of the Soviet Union. And this team, Temp, they were the last team to win it in 91. And then, then became, because of the that victory in the cup, they were included in the top flight of the newly formed Ukrainian league. Wow. And it was just amazing because, you know, they they just were founded in 1990 and as an amateur club. In 1992, they were already playing in the top flight. And of course, they, they, they stayed for a bit and they, they were relegated. And slowly they were just, you know, going down simply because uh, you, the, the guys who were behind it just didn't have enough uh, money to support it. And I think they uh, actually after 95, 96 season just were gone. So we're talking about like six <laughs> years of history that included a, a cup victory in the regional tournament and a few seasons in the top flight of the newly formed Ukrainian league. Six years of chaos is what it sounds like, but good chaos. Six years of fun <laughs> for all those fans, you know, some great times, constant partying. Um, and the, the club that we mentioned on, um, Dnipro, when they, they played Hibs, is that is that club, did they fold and reform? Am I right in saying that? Or did, was uh, it a bit more convoluted? 
it was a very simple situation. The guy who owned the club, well, he's very famous in Ukraine. He says that only cowards pay their debts. And he had Juan de Ramos, a very good Spanish coach who took the club, to, I think you remember that, to the Europa League final in 2015. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And Juan de Ramos and his assistants, they were owed money, but the guy didn't want to pay them. And what happens in those situations, you know, you go to FIFA, you go to courts or whatever, and they make the club pay you. So he just dissolved the club. Wow. Simply, simply because of that. And he formed a new one. Well, uh, he was behind it. It's called, it's now it's called uh, Dnipro One. Yeah. Oh, as, as we yes. call as we call it minus one <laughs> because Carlos <laughs> does that. No, honestly, I, I've heard some Spanish guys when they played in the, the European competitions call them that minus, minus one, one because they think that it's a minus <laughs> in the name. But no, I mean, it, it, was, it was purely because of that. He killed the club because he wanted to, because he could to. And there was no other reason for that. It's not like the club, you know, folded because under the weight of that and all that. No, which is because one person decided that he would do it. And that was it. Just because of this mantra, only cowards pay their debts. Look, oh, I don't know. You you look at the, I, I don't know. Imagine Gla Glazer family saying, you know, we're not paying anything. <laughs> we'll just sell Man United and we'll start. But there, there is United and Mines is still ready. So it wouldn't work probably. <laughs> Absolutely, absolutely. Um, and as we mentioned earlier on, um, there's been a few Ukrainian players in Scotland. The two that, that come to my mind was, uh, of course, Marian Shved. We spoke about, I think he's still at Shakhtar, is that right? Yeah, yeah he is, yeah. he is, yeah, he is. Because, you know, this season he only played uh, 21 minutes in the league, 19 in the cup, mm -hmm. and he came on twice in the Champions League. Uh, as a late substitute, so that's why it didn't even register much. With him. <laughs> he's yeah, still there, age twenty six. But of course, you know, when we talk about Ukrainians in Scotland, there was this unfortunate for me personally moment when uh, Alexei Mikhailichenko and Oleg Kuznetsov played for a certain team in Glasgow. Mm. I still remember watching the derby when they scored, I think, three or four goals in the four two win for that side. Mm -hmm. it was painful it was painful for me On especially it was at that period when they were winning all those titles and thankfully of course Josef Benglish came and stopped that in 98 but it was, pain, it was painful but yeah they were playing for, for that team and uh, I, I think uh, the stories they had about that time because they had Gaza in the side mm-hmm because they are Ali McCoyst on the side. And Ali, for me, was probably the only player from that side that I always loved when he played for Scotland. There's another player who's, who's kind of... He's, he's certainly making waves within Scotland, I think, because he, he was loaned out from St. Johnson a number of times to Falkirk. I think yeah. maybe our broth as well, Max Kucherevi. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, um, that's another one, yeah. He was, was he born in, in Kiev? He started his career with a, a, a club in Kiev. I, I think it was uh, DYUSSH 15 Kiev. I'm not too sure yeah. where they are. In, it's uh, it's in like, yeah, I, I, I know that one is a very famous like uh, a football school, like academy. Uh, ah, okay. It stands for Children Youth Sports School or something like that, that abbreviation for that. But yeah, it's it's really famous because when I was a kid, we used to play against them. To, yeah, so yeah, he, he, he started there, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and and I was just reading there. He actually used to fly from Kiev to Edinburgh to train with Hearts, um, which he done for a period of two years, and then eventually signed for St Johnson. So, I mean, you know, fair play to him, and, and he's he's starting to come good. He's he's been featuring for St Johnson quite a lot. So he was hoping his career kicks on because he's only twenty one. Yeah, he, he he got a brace against Dundee, I think, early in the season. He did, in, yeah. He's cracking. He's a great player in the league, and, and he's playing for the under twenty ones now in this new cycle. No, what amazed me is that he only had a couple of goals in his career before, and then he goes and scores a brace. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the thing, and and a lot of people still hold the opinion that if you're small and if you're quite slightly built, then you're never going to make it in Scottish football, which just isn't the case. Um, well, it's it's nah, dinosaur like opinions. So you know. many Scottish great footballers were small. Gosh. Jimmy Johnson. No. Jimmy Johnson. Look, the, the, the look oh, I, just, I just don't understand when people start talking about it, and especially when they mention Scotland. I was like, look, who taught the world to play football? Scots. 
they started the passing game. They brought it to bloody South America, to Uruguay, to Argentina. You know, and they, they talk about long ball and all that stuff. Oh, come on. Absolutely. I completely agree with you. And Chris, what about yourself? Is there any Ukrainian players played for Grimsby that you can remember during your time? No, no certainly not, not for Grimsby. And to be honest with you, not. I mean, I'm sure there has been, but look, nothing that comes to sort of mind in the lower leagues. He was a, a very, very good player. For me, the period when Grimsby were in the championship, like early in this yeah. century, was glorious because I just loved listening to all those idiots from Sky saying, oh, they're going down, so they're playing the likes yeah. of Grimsby next season. It, like, oh, we had, we had um, websites and T-shirts and, and whatnot sort of printed with that, the likes of Grimsby. Uh, we used to keep, it kind of used to be a bit of a running, running joke. We'd love to get back to that kind of level. Now, it's funnily enough, the fan base we have now is... It's far more. I mean, when we were in the second tier there, it was brilliant. We were playing the likes of your Wolves and West Broms and Forest week in, week out. And, but you'd still only have three, 4,000 home fans turn up, which was bizarre for me. Yeah. Now we're in the... Um, now we've been in the non-league and league, bottom end of League 2 in but, look, six, seven, eight thousand. You, you got the feel-good factor back when you changed the owners, when the new owners came in. Because uh, yeah. the, the previous guy was just like, you read about him, and it's just like, come on, you can't be serious. A, there's a lot I could say about the previous, uh, yeah, I mean, a, bit of a bit of a parody character, to be honest with you. But, um, there's, yeah. there's, but certainly, you're right. Uh, we're obviously we're having a bit of a tough season this season, but in terms of overall, the uh, sort of breathe new life into it, really. Hopefully, we can get back to make our way up the pyramid a bit more, back mm. to the glory days of the second tier. No, there's another player that, that kind of came to mind and he himself is, is is not Ukrainian but he did play for a Ukrainian side and then eventually moved to Kilmarnock um, he played for medalist Kharkiv Alexei Eremenko oh yeah because yeah the, the, he's from Finland and his brother played for Dynamo Kiev for my team in Ukrainian league Roman I think his name mm -hmm. and yeah it was a a Soviet player who went to Finland and the, the, the kids were born there, so they represented Finland. And yeah, he, he played and well, kind of played. He 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 spent some time there at some point when called playing exactly, but he spent he was, some time, yeah. And then he was a journeyman, and I think he's due to be voted into the Kilmarnock Hall of Fame. He never he, he didn't really pull up any many trees in terms of a goal scoring sense, but he was just he was a nuisance, he was box office, and he was a cult hero, and he's became a cult hero. Kamara, no, because, because the thing is, he, his brother was a very good player, really good player. One of those, you know, who think on the pitch and they're good with their feet, both feet actually. And yeah, it was very, very good. And I mean, I mean there's been tons as well. Premier League, um, you had Andrei Shevchenko, of course, he's one of the I remember. There was sick I read Rob. No, of course. You, yeah, I, I mentioned the, the, those two, uh, Mikhailichenko and Kuznetsov. But I, uh, I have to remind you as well of Serhiy Baltacha, who played for St Johnston. Yes, the, early nineties, yeah, yeah, yeah. and he played for, uh, I think, Inverness as well. Mm -hmm. Coming back to this topic of uh, Chernobyl, it happened on twenty sixth of April, nineteen eighty six. Officially, it was announced in Soviet television on the twenty ninth. So it took mm -hmm. three days even to tell people about it. On the 2nd of May, Dynamo Kiev played the Cup Winners' Cup final in 86 against Atletico Madrid in Lyon. And Baltachow was a part of that side. He was one of the best defenders in the Soviet Union at the time. And uh, he won that title. And his first team abroad was Ipswich. So he went to England first, started playing there. Uh, he, he was, I think he was in his 30s when he, he, he went there already. And uh, he ended up in Scotland. It's interesting also that during the broadcast of that final on the 2nd of May, the commentator mentioned Chernobyl disaster in the first half. So that half was just deleted from the archives of Soviet television. So now if you want oh. to watch the game with that commentary, it's only second half. They deleted oh. the first half just because it was mentioned. He, he, may, he mentioned it briefly. You know, He didn't turn it into something political. Nothing. He just mentioned it. It was still deleted immediately. Wow. No, because it was yeah. in his communism. 
It was yeah, of course, yeah. absolutely. And, and, and this, now, now they're, they're lying in the United Nations on the name of Russia, and they, they were lying on the name of Soviet Union back then when they say nothing happened. Mm-hmm. And from Sweden, people were saying, look, we, we're just in this high level of radiation. What is going on? Is nothing happened? Of course, one thing I wanted to touch on as well, um, I'm not sure if, if, if you were at any of the games, but Scotland played Ukraine but three times in the space of maybe eight to 12 months, roughly. Uh, twice in the Nations League. Um, yeah, yeah. We drew with Ukraine over in Poland and, and we beat Ukraine 3-0 um, at Hamden. And then, of course, the World Cup qualifier, one that arguably mattered the most, Ukraine absolutely trounced us 3-1. Were you at those games at all or did you just watch them? I also remember the qualifiers for Euro 2008. And Scotland and Ukraine were in the same group. Yeah. And uh, before the game in Kiev, I went to see the training session in Scotland where training. And the strikers were practicing their shots. And I was like five, ten meters over the bar all the time. And there was this guy in the coaching staff called Ali McCoist, who just came on and started putting in the top corners. Boom, boom, boom. I was like, God, this guy. <laughs> just I mean, this guy called Ali McCoist. Yeah. And I managed to remember in 1996, a game against Switzerland, when Ali scored his brilliant goal. And then Craig Brown, may rest in peace, showing it's all fine. Because England were beating Netherlands 4-0. And he yeah. was like, it's all fine. We don't need another goal. And I was like, no, no, you do need another goal. Because, of course, the Netherlands scored. I, mean, I can imagine being a, a Dynamo Key fan, um, of course, Incredibly difficult situation that, that yourself and all other Ukrainians are in at the moment. Um, but again, football is likely something that's playing second fiddle to everything that's going on. Just how how, how has it been trying to follow a team when you're based remotely? The team is the club itself has been ruined by the owners for years now. So it's just okay. like it's kind of apathy. It, it started like many years ago, many years ago. It's just like they, they they don't invest properly. If they invest, they just invest in the wrong players. They they they, they don't even think about appointing a proper manager for, for 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 the side. It's just like God. It's just it's, it's so so many things. Uh, and so many fans just kind of not even bothering now. Mm. Loads of people I know used to go to games like we had season tickets, and they just decided. No, I wouldn't bother anymore because it just doesn't change. It's the same, and uh, especially well, considering what my generation remembers, like European Cup winners cup uh, semi-finals of the European Cup in the Champions League in '87 and '99 and all that, being competitive, and of course it just doesn't compare to what it. It's not even about that. I, okay, I understand that you, you you can have a barren spell like like Celtic had in the eighties, for example. You know, had to wait for that title and all that stuff. Mm. But uh, you just see people making the same mistakes over and over again. Guys, been a excellent conversation, not just about Pripyat, obviously. You guys have got so much knowledge of the game and, and the way that you managed to capture all the emotion of, of, of Pripyat into that article was, was absolutely fantastic. And anything else you guys want to add just before we finish up? Uh, I, I just wanted to thank you guys for doing the work you're doing because, well, we were kind of learning geography and history through football. Yeah, you know, yeah. It's just clubs, countries and disappeared clubs, the clubs forgotten. It, it's all part of it. It's... It's amazing because that's how we learn and it's just how we realize that the football festival wasn't invented in 1992. It's not limited to five, six, seven, eight, I don't know, ten clubs that we're talking about the super shit that we're called Super League and all that. It's just, for me, football is, well, smaller clubs like Arbroath, and Dickie Campbell isn't there anymore. I mean, it's just, that's just, you know, that that's what football is about and, and, and in England as well, you know, you've got like mates don't beat an Ipswich in the cup. Amazing. Excellent. Well, thank you very much. And thank you very much for coming on. We appreciate it massively. And this is an episode we've been really looking forward to, to doing again. Thank you to yourself and Chris for contributing so much to the article and, and right now. I mean, we've been speaking for almost two hours and not just about Pripyat or, or football in Ukraine or other lost teams, but just, just good chats about football. And, and ultimately that's what it's all about. Chris, the, again, for, for kind of, taking the lead on on curating the article, if you like reaching out to so many people, 
um, and Vincent as well for, for helping out with the stadium side of things is something that we, we never even really touched on. I mean, thanks so much. I mean, is it something you enjoy doing? Would you do it again? Uh, absolutely. It's exactly the kind of stuff I like to sort of get stuck into. But I like to come at it from a few different ways. When it's something of that magnitude, I'd like to, you know, you need to get the facts in there, but I, I wanted to get some people who uh, get involvement from some people who, shall we say, could feel what happened, uh, uh, were around or, or know of people around and could give us the sort of uh, the social and emotional standpoint of it. So I think that all sort of helps the mix in the article and helps get the story across. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And and again, I just wanted to thank you guys for, for, for coming on tonight and contributing so much to the article. It's been been absolutely fascinating learning about the club and, and speaking to you guys just on, on a kind of footballing level as well. So thank you very much for that. As I said at the beginning of the episode, this is the beginning of our, our next run of shows. And of course, if you have any ideas yourself that you can think of that have come up for this episode, just get in touch with us on Twitter. We'll be more than happy to hear from you and, and speak to you. Um, If you wanted to write an article about it as well, then then more than happy to do that too. Chris Chris can help you out with research. And um, yeah, just whatever there is, if there's something you want us to cover, then please do get in touch. But this has been... Great episode, first episode back. But uh, Dimitro, you say goodbye to all of our listeners. Yeah, thanks for having me. And uh, I do hope we'll have some kind of uh, proper football still in our lives. <laughs> <laughs> me too. For the football purists, absolutely. I'd agree. Um, Chris, if you could say goodbye to all of our listeners again. Yeah, bye. Thanks for listening. And it's a good night from me as well. We'll see you all again next week. Goodbye.